There's a piece at theconversation.com, one of our favorite websites, entitled Biden's Keystone XL Death Sentence Requires Canada's Oil Sector to Innovate. This is not the first time we've heard uh, this sentiment, but it is certainly the most recent because this is very fresh stuff. The article was written by our first guest this morning. Dr. Warren Maybe is director of Queen's Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Maybe, Warren, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, sir. Tell us a little bit about why no one, except perhaps Jason Kenney, was surprised when Joe Biden cut the Keystone XL on day one. Well, this was something that uh, the president had been signaling uh, for months and months. You know, uh, it was part of his election campaign. Uh, He was part of the Obama administration, which had already cut this project once, uh, he had made it very clear that that he saw this as uh, part of his climate imperative, uh, that he was going to uh, cut Keystone XL. It was uh, very clearly signaled sure. <laughs> for months and months. So, you know, I don't think it really did come as a shock to anybody, including probably the premier, uh, although he's coming across as though it has. Well, of course, and he's on the hook in so many ways for this uh, with the $1.5 billion investment of Alberta taxpayer dollars in uh, propping up the project. When did that particular investment take place? So that took place in the spring, uh, so almost a year ago now. Uh, And it took place at a time when uh, it was becoming increasingly clear that there weren't too many investors out there that were looking to put big money into Keystone XL. Right. Uh, there was some uh, thought at that moment that perhaps the project would stall out, uh, and the premier really didn't want to see that happen. Obviously, uh, if the project could be completed, uh, it would be a big win for Alberta. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he put some money where its mouth was, and. This is not unprecedented. We've had the prime minister investing in pipelines uh, in the last few years. So uh, for our governments to make these kind of investments, it's not unusual, let's put it that way. For sure. And of course, uh, I suppose, though, the sort of the, the sword of Damocles hanging over this whole thing all the way along, uh, because Mr. Trump uh, gave it the, the green light and all the rest of it. But the project had already been canceled once by Barack Obama. His successor said, no, 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 we'll put it back on stream. Well, uh, it, it, it would suggest to any observer, particularly an in deep pocket type investor, Warren, and this is where we're going with this conversation, uh, that this is not a very stable-looking situation. I think that's right. Um, I mean, if you look at it purely through science, you know, purely through what the impacts are, uh, what the risks are, what the benefits would be, uh, this is a project that has a lot of merits. And I think that that's where the Alberta government had come from. You know, it would get a lot of uh, oil off of rail cars. Mm-hmm. Because right now, a lot of oil is traveling by rail and you know, moving oil by rail has its own very uh, significant challenges and, and risks. Uh, it would add jobs. You know, the, the climate impact that the U.S. came up with when they did their study uh, four years ago was not huge. That's it wasn't right. zero. <laughs> let's, let's not make any mistakes. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a zero game, uh, but it wasn't going to be the very worst thing to happen. But it became a political statement 
uh, a political statement of the Obama administration, of the Trump administration, and now of the Biden administration. Yes. And I think that scares investors when it becomes a political football, uh, when, you know, different groups are looking to make hay off of these projects. Uh, that introduces a whole different element of risk. And it should probably also be just noted for the record, as you do in your article, that, you know, this is not unanimous uh, south of the border either, keeping in mind that the Democratic Party claims to be the voice of labor in the American political scene. There are a lot of union jobs in uh, in and along the route of the Keystone XL pipeline that are now going to vanish. And there's a lot of squawking going on about that right now, too. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, they've estimated 2,800 jobs in Canada, almost 11,000 jobs in the United States. Uh, this is a big employer. Uh, it would make a big impact uh, in Alberta, certainly. It would make big impacts in the states south of the border. Uh, and we've heard lots of groups come out uh, it just in the last few days to say just that, you know, that they're now going to be facing a bust instead of a boom, mm -hmm. uh, and they're pointing fingers back at the Biden administration. So is it safe to say this is, this, uh, this is dead, it's gone, it's never going to come back? I think it's going to be very difficult <laughs> to turn the clock back on this one, Right. partly because uh, President Biden has made this one of his very first acts. You know, this is not something that he's come to after, you know, months and months of discussion. Uh, this is not something that uh, has, you know, any leeway really built into it. He's done this as a symbolic act. Definitely. And, and to have a president back up on that and say, well, no, okay, I can see your point, is very, very difficult. And, and I think that uh, perhaps the prime minister has already seen that, although he has, you know, been critical of, of the decision. Uh, I think that we need to start thinking about other strategies uh, because I think it's going to be hard to turn Keystone back on. Our guest is Dr. Warren Maybe from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, where he is the director of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy. Dr. Maybe also wrote a piece at theconversation.com entitled Biden's Keystone XL Death Sentence Requires Canada's Oil Sector to Innovate. And Dr. Maybe, uh, Warren, we've talked about the, the effect on the economy of Alberta, the cost to taxpayers, and you break it down. Uh, that billion five that uh, Kenny put into the pipeline a year ago, that works out to about 400 bucks a head per Albertan. Uh, and so that may be recovered. Uh, there may be some litigation. There may be a sale of assets. But essentially, that money, for all intents and purposes, is written off already, isn't it? I think so, yeah. There's some opportunities, certainly, to go after uh, the U.S. Uh, we have a trade agreement, as we all know, uh, and that trade agreement has provisions for when big changes are made like this. And, you know, we don't know exactly what's happening behind the scenes with the prime minister and, and the president. We know they had a phone call and that Keystone was one of the things that they talked about. So maybe we'll see some of that money back. But, you know, these are risky investments. And <laughs> you don't always get back everything that you've put in. Sure. Uh, I think we have to, to be looking that way. 
So as your article indicates, there is a need to move on here. There's a need to rethink the petro sector. But you're not necessarily saying, as some uh, would argue uh, from the uh, energy opponent's uh, corner, that all of this just needs to stay in the ground and we need to turn off all the taps and move on to something else. And and magically, uh, replacement jobs will appear over the horizon. All you have to do is turn the taps off. That's not what you're suggesting at all. You're suggesting the petro sector itself rethink what it does with its product elaborate please well that's it i think that there's a very valuable resource there uh it's a resource that we don't just use for energy although that's the first thing we think of sure Uh, we make plastics we make chemicals we make resins and all sorts of valuable products that uh, we still need and that actually do lock up carbon uh there are problems with most of those products, by the way, that would have to be addressed, but uh, there's still things that we want and things that we could do with that resource. Right. The sector is starting to pivot. We're starting to see uh, projects around the world uh, looking at, you know, focusing on those value-added products, trying to minimize the byproducts because gasoline is actually simply a byproduct of a distillation process that was set up many, many years ago, really to get kerosene out of out of uh, petroleum. Right. So, you know, getting away from making a lot of these byproducts, minimizing that end of things, and maximizing the valuable end. This is where I think that the petrol sector has a huge opportunity, and I think it really ties into a greener future. So again, it's uh, you're talking about reapplying uh, or redirecting the bulk of the petro products, oil in this case in Alberta, uh, and and some natural gas, but all, but uh, to, to taking those and realizing that they do contribute to important products, plastics being perhaps the best known, rubber, chemicals, all sorts of things that you describe in the article. Uh, if, if the petro sector were to somehow or another pivot to not just extracting the fuel, but are you suggesting that the petrol sector itself find ways to process the fuel or the, or the I guess, the bitumen, in, in the case of the oil sands, into something that the plastics industry can use immediately? Yeah, uh, this is exactly the way that I think that we should be moving. And, you know, we have an incredibly skilled petro sector. We have chemical engineers and process engineers uh, that are among the best in the world. Uh, we have great universities. We have lots of capacity to really start moving ourselves in this direction. But it's a real change in the corporate thinking. You know, the corporate thinking has always been uh, volume over value. Sure. If you could make enough of this stuff that we could weather the ups and downs in the oil market uh, and we could handle the discount that we get uh, on the North American market, you know, just by putting more volume out there. Well, why don't we try the value proposition? (laughs) Let's try to get more value out of every barrel. Maybe we don't need as many barrels, which also would be really good from an environmental perspective, taking less out of the ground and getting much more value from it. Well, there you go. That that would be ultimately the perfect solution, wouldn't it? Uh, it would satisfy so many, or perhaps not the purists who want no extraction whatsoever, but for the the bulk of the population, if if the such uh, if the bitumen that heavy uh, oil can be 
pulled out of the ground and turned into high-value products, then uh, it, it really does solve a lot of problems uh, and perhaps even reduces the need for the extraction of the volumes that we're currently going at. But there's also still the energy demand that Alberta as supplies uh, in whatever uh, limited capacity. So let's talk about for a moment, if you don't mind, Warren, because you address this uh, it, with the demise of Keystone XL uh, and Lord only knows where the Trans Mountain Pipeline, now owned by the government and the people of Canada, is going to uh, going to go. But is that it for pipelines? You mentioned something about Energy East in your article, the, the one that was turned down by Quebec, uh, not allowing social license for Alberta yep. oil to be pumped back east to those refineries in New Brunswick who import currently from Saudi Arabia. That's right. So Energy East is the other project that that is, I think, on people's minds. I've had people ask me about it over the last uh, week or so, you know, is this going to come back up? And it was the most developed pipeline proposal in the country sure. outside of Keystone and, and Trans Mountain. So uh, if the company were to decide to pivot, you know, in a different direction than what I've just described, you know, not the higher value, but the higher volume, Energy East is probably the most logical choice to start with. You know, you could go back, dust off the application, resubmit, and go through the process. Now, I don't know that it's really a winning uh, proposal. It's an incredibly complicated proposal. It involves so many different governments and, and, and stakeholder mm-hmm. groups. Uh, it has so many risks associated with it. Um, it. It would be an incredibly challenging thing to pull off. But, you know, what does TC Energy have left besides Energy East if Keystone is, is down? I think that uh, what we may see is that the company doesn't propose any more Canadian projects, that they actually just focus their attention south of the border, which is what they've been doing uh, with much of their time lately anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alberta is uh, currently, though, with the, the, the state of, uh, well, uh, inert activity, uh, much to do with the uh, regime of regulations imposed by the Trudeau government. Uh, this is not an attractive investment environment anymore. What does Alberta, uh, can, I should, I should rephrase, can Alberta do anything to make itself more attractive uh, without uh, moving in tandem with the government of Canada? Well, it's it's difficult because, you know, it's it's not just government of Canada; it's the government of the United States as well. Sure, uh, Alberta is a landlocked uh, province, and so without a port and the ability to get uh, oil into other places around the world, you know, China comes to mind. Uh, they're limited in their options. They're limited in the number of directions that they can go. Uh, what's not limited is imagination. Sure. So again, if they were to rethink their sector and to say, okay, you know, we've had a couple of really good booms here and it's really benefited our province and the rest of Canada. Um, now we want to think about really retooling and, and going in a new direction. You see, the thing is, I think that Canadians would get behind that, not just Albertans. I think that uh, there'd be a lot of enthusiasm for investing in that kind of a future, and that that's a way that Alberta could really benefit from what's happened here. You know, this is really a door slamming in the face, and a lot of people 
are just feeling that right now. But you know, every time a door slams, a window opens somewhere. So <laughs> let's find that window and see if we can take advantage. And nothing would give Jason Kenney more pleasure than to do an end run around the government of Canada and pull off some kind of winning solution. It's a terrific article. I commend it to our listeners. It's at theconversation.com, and it's Biden's Keystone XL death sentence requires Canada's oil sector to innovate. The author, Dr. Warren Maybe from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Warren, it's been a real pleasure having you on the program. Thoroughly enjoyed the article and the conversation. Let's uh, keep an eye on things and uh, very much like to check back with you as Alberta tries to sort this out. I'd be happy to come back and, and thanks very much for having me. It's our pleasure entirely. Dr. Warren may be joining us from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. We saw this article in the paper the other day in the Financial Post, as a matter of fact, entitled Federal Government is Still Dithering and Delaying on CERB. And the first reaction was, wait a second, CERB is gone. How can they possibly be dithering and delaying on something that's already departed. Well, I read the article and, and, and discovered, to my dismay, there's a lot going on that a lot of Canadians are finding themselves in the middle of a great deal of confusion. The article was written by Alan Lantier, who is a retired partner at an international accounting firm. Mr. Lantier has also been an advisor to both the Canadian Department of Finance and the Canada Revenue Agency. Alan Lantier joins us this morning from Montreal. Good morning, sir. Welcome to the program, Alan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good, good morning, Sterling. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, the the article, the reason that this caught my attention so immediately was how could the government still be dithering and delaying on something that is gone and has been replaced? But it it goes back to those people who qualified, or perhaps Alan thought they qualified in the first place, doesn't it? Um, exactly, Sterling. It's um, there. There was a source of. Well, there were a few areas of, of, of confusion, and they've lasted for months and months. And, and one of them involves um, one of the requirements that, that you have to meet to obtain the CERB, which, as you say, is now finished. Um, and one of the requirements, well, you know, you had to lose work because of, uh, of, of COVID-19, yes. et cetera. But, but you also had to have earned at least $5,000 in income from employment or self-employment in, in 2019. And for the self-employed, no one ever n- knew exactly what that term income meant. Does it mean gross income before expenses, net income after expenses? And the dithering and delay, and, and, and Carla Qualtro, Minister Qualtro, certainly didn't help out on, on this. The kind of revenue agency initially said it's gross income okay. forget about your expenses and um so if you earned at least five thousand dollars in 2019 um as a self-employed person whether it's a plumber an artist a gig worker if you had at least five thousand forget about um forget about the expenses it's gross income okay then they changed their mind they didn't tell it they didn't tell everyone <laughs> They didn't tell everyone uh, right away. They kind of buried it in a in a long, like thirty page question and answer. They buried it towards the bottom. Oh, we we now consider it net, and um, so we've now come to the point of reckoning where you know. So which is it, um, gross or net? Because people applied for serve, 
Um, it was a huge program, uh, as, uh, as you know. There were like, close to 9 million Canadians received CERB payments. It's an incredible amount, uh, about $880 billion. So included in that group are the people um, we're talking about here, the self-employed, who may or may not have had met the 5,000 requirement for 2019, um, depending depending on what this means. Is, is it income after expenses or before? And if it's after expenses, um, the CRA has set out 441,000 um, quote-unquote education letters saying, hey, we're not sure that you did make 5000 in 2019, and so just to let you know, you may have to uh, repay it. Ouch. So and, and, and it, but it's, it's just to let you know, you may have to pay it back. They're not even saying, they're not even demanding repayment yet, are they? Um, that's right. Um, Carla Qualtrough was, um, who's the minister responsible for this program, um, was interviewed in early January um, and asked, so, like, where do you stand? Sure. And she says, well, I think, I guess where we stand is the CRA tells me it's net because that's the way we always do things, um, whatever that means. And so um, we'd like people to send it back if they didn't have net income. Are you, are you going to change your policy position? Well, we might, uh, but we're still looking at it. So if you're out there, if, you were, uh, if you're struggling to pay your rent and groceries and you receive CERB, you've, you've paid the amounts, you, you don't have any money left in the bank. Well, that's for sure. And, and, and Carla Qualtrough is saying, well, um, you're going to have to repay it, um, I guess, um, but we're still looking at it. Thus, thus, so the, it, thus the dithering and delaying part of the title of the article you wrote. So, Alan, let me just try to understand this clearly. The, the, the matter of the $5,000, be it net or, or gross, if you did not make $5,000 in the year preceding, uh, in, in 2019, or the 12 months preceding your application for CERB, you were going to be, what, denied the CERB? Um. If if you did not make whether it's gross or net, if if, if you don't meet the test, um, and there's going to be many many people who had no income, from, right. Zero income from employment, sure, or self employment in 2019, and they went ahead and applied um, anyway and and received the serve, and and clearly under the law, Sterling, those people owe it back. But why, why did they get the funds in the first place? Well, they got the funds in the first place because when this program was rolled out, the politicians, and, and, and I, I hate to use your Vancouver, Vancouver area MP, uh, Minister Qualtrill, but she said, okay, this is what we're doing. And she, and she broadcast it. I mean, the world knew this. Mm-hmm. You apply for CERB and you're getting it. Right. Uh, if you're 95 years old, um, it's there are a few 95 years old uh, that are still working and they could lose their work uh, be, because of CERB. Um, but 
the CRA representatives who normally do a great job and they wanted to do an upfront review uh, so that we wouldn't get into this type of mess we are now, they were instructed by the politicians to, you get the cash out of out the door. If someone sends in an invalid social insurance number or it appears that they're dead, so perhaps they're applying for serve after they voted for Donald Trump, they're dead. Uh, those people, you know, give them a phone call and, uh, and follow it up. But for everybody else, just send out the money and we'll we'll follow it up later and that was that was the part that amazed a lot of canadians even when the when the 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 whole pandemic and and the the obvious need for some kind of government remedy was 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 as plain as the nose on your face the directive that came from the politicians included the phrase ignore obvious red flags and a lot of taxpayers went why that's isn't that your job yeah, exactly. And and uh, and and I've worked with the CRA um, my entire career, generally on the opposite side of the fence, right. having good battles with them. But they're very professional, smart, diligent people, and they wanted to do their job, and they would have done their job um, um, had they not been uh, prevented from 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 doing it by by uh, their political masters. Sterling Fox with Alan Lantier in Montreal. Mr. Lantier wrote a piece in the Financial Post the other day. Here's the last paragraph. Last week, the Dutch government resigned as a result of a scandal under which thousands of families were wrongly accused of child welfare fraud. Thousands of Canadians have now been accused of Serb fraud or error by this government. It will be a cold day in hell before this government resigns, but it could at least admit its error. Except the total income under the Serb Act means gross income. Stop distressing thousands of Serb recipients who acted in good faith and get on with governing in the midst of a pandemic. So 441,000 education letters, you call them, uh, Ellen, were sent out uh, a month or so ago uh, to advise all of those people that uh, they their situation was not secure. Uh, how many of them uh, have it, it, to would you think would be in a position where they would be required to repay the CERB? Um, well, if uh, in a position, it depends, of course, what you mean by in a position. If you spent the money on rent and groceries and have nothing, whatever, left in the bank, um, they even if as a matter of law, they had no income in 2019. Right. Uh, so that as a matter of law, they're they're required to pay it back. Problem is. They might not have a penny uh, left to to uh, pay it back. And under the CERB legislation um, that was passed by Parliament, there's no interest, there's no penalties, uh, there's no particular recourse that the government has to um, other than you know chasing people down one by one, four hundred and forty-one thousand people. Um, so it's a, um, um, there's a lot of people affected. Yes. I have no idea how many are affected by the, um, by the gross uh, versus net, but there's going to be thousands of those people. And those people filed in good faith. They were told by the CRA, it's gross income. Right. 
Um, so they took the CRA at its word. Um, they applied. They spent the money on rent and groceries. Then the CRA changed its position. Um, in, in, in my opinion, um, they had the, the right interpretation to start with, Sterling. It is gross income. Right. Um, but um, Carla Qualtro, in her last interview, again, said, well, I don't know. I'm told that by the CRA, this is how we always, this is how we calculate things. Well, we're not talking about how we generally calculate things. We're talking about the CERB Act and right. the new legislation. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's gross income, um, that uh, the CRA had it right the first time. And so the question is, what are the politicians going to do about it? Are they going to give some type of amnesty to people that applied in good faith on the advice of the CRA? Or are they just going to... Uh, harass them and pursue them and um and if if these folks have no money have no money to pay you know seize seize their belongings it's it's a very um it's it's a very unfortunate position and it's position the federal government if it wanted to own up and take responsibility um they 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 could be done with this. They could make an announcement that those who applied in good faith, based on CRA advice, we will not be pursuing. Right, exactly. But as you know, as you know, this federal government doesn't like to admit mistakes. They may want it just to, uh, you know, disappear. You know, old soldiers never die; they just fade away. They may just want to stop talking about this if they can, and just uh, let it fade away. So we're not quite sure. Uh, what the federal government's going to do about this at this stage. Well, exactly. But, you know, if you're in the middle of this, if you're one of the 400,000 plus Canadians who are uh, who have received these letters, and as you pointed out in your article, it must feel like death by a thousand cuts to many of those people because there's still this this has been going on for many months and there's still no resolution. We're now in a new calendar year. So you would think that would be the perfect opportunity for clarity. Here we are. Our brand new year, we're going to start filing taxes in the end of April. So here, all of you Serb people, here's the deal. And they've had many months to do that, and they still haven't come forward with some kind of an amnesty. Is Do you think that's the likely solution, Alan, particularly given the fact that uh, the Trudeau government appears to be uh, desiring an election this year? An amnesty would certainly politically be the right thing to do. Um. You know, there's there's differences of uh, opinion on that. There's there's a segment of the population that says, you know, if these people didn't deserve it. They applied for it because their relatives, their neighbors, their 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 children said, "Go for it." Walteroa said, "The money's there. Apply for it. You get it. So don't be silly. Apply for it because the government said you 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 build it with." with it. We will come. Right. You, you apply for it, we'll send you the check. So um, so there's an element of the population that doesn't like the idea of, 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 an, am- of an amnesty. But um, uh, on, on the other hand, you have thousands of people that, um, that simply don't have the money to repay the service. Uh, they, they don't ha- they, 
they don't have money in the bank at the at the end of the month, and they certainly can't pay fourteen thousand, mm-hmm. which was the maximum amount of serve that one was allowed to uh, to receive uh, while the program was in place. They don't have fourteen thousand. Sure. Alan, the thing that surprises me most is that we're learning about this from you. Uh, no uh, slight against your uh, credibility or anything like that. You you present your case very uh, very forthright manner and 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 all of that. But I'm curious as to why no one in the opposition political ranks is uh, floating this out in front of the taxpayers of the country. Going, look, uh, the, it, it's pretty messy here, and they haven't bothered to clean up the mess. Uh, they they'll tell us they're too busy. But it's still a real horrible mess. Why isn't the opposition on this? Isn't that their job? It's a good question. Um, I know Pierre Polyev, although I voted liberal most of my life and I worked with Paul Martin, but I I know Pierre Polyev. Um, um, I've I've emailed him um, uh, this particular article. Parliament uh, Parliament starts sitting again tomorrow. Uh Uh-huh. so we'll we'll see if anything happens. I I, I also know that Paul uh, Paul Manley, Green Green Party member um, from from British Columbia, has a, a different another group who's put together a petition have reached out to Paul Manley and asked him to take this on and 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 raise it. And they tried to put me in touch with him over the weekend, but um, but I haven't heard back. All right. So well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, We'll see if there's uh, the opposition party step up and um, and do their jobs. And as you know, Pierre Polyev is is, is usually a pretty effective guy. In, I would in love to see Pierre Polyev run with this file. Excellent work, Alan Lantier. Thank you so much for at least stirring the pot to the point where a lot of taxpayers are going to start asking hard questions. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. There's Alan Lantier in Montreal this morning. Mr. Lantier is a retired executive with an international accounting firm and has also in his career been an advisor to the Federal Department of Finance and the Canadian Revenue Agency. Our guest joining us from the University of Victoria is Philippe Lucas. Mr. Lucas is VP Patient Research and Access with Tilray, but also a graduate researcher at the Center for Addictions Research at the University of Victoria. And we're here to talk about a study that's very recent that's fine finding rather almost half of people who use medical cannabis with chronic pain stopped using opioids this is a significant development philippe lucas good morning welcome back to the show sir well thank you so much sterling it's really nice to uh, speak with you this morning well it's good to have you back with us tell us more about this study this is big stuff philip Sure. This is uh, the largest uh, uh, prospective national study of medical cannabis that's been done to date in Canada and involved over 2,100 patients across 21 medical clinics um, all across Canada. And, um, the, uh, you know, the study was designed to look at patient patterns of use, but also the impact of that use on prescription drug use and on quality of life. And as you noted, one of the primary findings of the study is that when patients introduce legal medical cannabis or authorized cannabis as supervised by their physician Mm -hmm. into their lives, they tend to reduce their use of prescription drugs. Uh, In particular, we see a significant decline in the use of prescription opioids. 
Interesting. Philip, as a sort of a sidebar to all of this, you talked about prescription drugs. The uh, doctors prescribing this medicinal cannabis to their patients uh, may may or may not be the same physician who prescribed the opioid painkiller in the first place. So I'm curious about the medical community and their reaction to this this new study, as they are the ones who are capable of of prescribing both. Well, you're absolutely right. There might be two different doctors involved in this. And, uh, and by the way, the goal of the study was not to work with doctors specifically that were aiming to reduce their use of, uh, of prescription drugs in this patient population. In many cases, the doctors simply tracked the prescription drug use over a six-month period of time. That's the length the, the patients were in the study. Okay. And so we, we compared uses of prescription drugs from baseline, one month, three months, and six months, down to the milligrams per day, and what we found was that um, whether it be opioids or also non-opioid pain medications, antidepressants, anti-seizure drugs, benzodiazepines or sleep aids, we saw statistically significant reductions both in the number of patients using these drugs as well as the actual drugs themselves. I think so far the medical community seems to be responding very well to this news as they're looking for alternatives uh, to opioids in the treatment of chronic pain and other conditions. Indeed, and I'm glad you took a moment to describe the, because the, the, there's more than, we're not just talking specifically about painkillers, although certainly by way of anecdotal examples, Philip, that is perhaps the best known example of an individual who, through no fault of his or her own, uh, has an accident, a sporting event or whatever, and ends up in a situation where they deal with chronic pain for which they are prescribed painkillers which results in serious addiction issues. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Sterling. About, uh, I think it's 75 to 85% of people who are using non-prescription opioids right now uh, and who are at risk of opioid overdose started out by using prescription opioids. Yep. So we see that, unfortunately, there's a sequence that occasionally happens where some patients start out, you know, well-meaning, using opioids in the, the kind of proper medical context and then because these are dependent forming substances go on to use them outside of the prescription drug use uh, setting and that's where the risks really increase because of the uh, uh, the contaminated drug supply uh, we have uh, carfentanil and fentanyl right mm-hmm. now and, sure. and as, as I'm sure you're aware um, accidental overdose of opioids is the leading cause of death uh, right now accidental death in, uh, in Canada far outstripping the, uh, the deaths that we're seeing uh, associated with COVID, actually, and, and increasing during COVID. And, and again, that, of course, uh, is, goes hand in glove in, in terms of, of increasing during COVID, as we've seen both uh, recreational, medicinal, and alcohol, uh, cannabis and alcohol consumption increase as this pandemic continues. Uh, that is a trend that's um, measurable and is certainly being measured and recognized right across the country. Absolutely. And so this study, I think, gives doctors and patients um, some inspiration and some options in how we treat chronic pain. And if we can stop patients from that, you know, from initially using opioids in the first place by using or prescribing cannabis instead of opioids for the treatment of pain um, or not increasing the dose of opioids by adding medical cannabis as an adjunct, to opioids when uh, patients become uh, uh, acclimatized to their dose of opioids, 
then I think we can really reduce the risk that they're going to go on to dependence and then the potential for overdose down the road. How does the, how does the, the typical scenario unfold, Philip, when a person who is addicted to some kind of, of uh, pre- prescription drug, some, a painkiller perhaps, some kind of opioid, and that individual recognizes that and, and wants to, to, to fix the situation up, clean it up, uh, does the person approach the doctor? Does the doctor approach the patient? Uh, what What's the, the interaction that creates uh, a, a scenario where medical cannabis can be discussed as an alternative? Well, it's interesting because most of the participants in the study, uh, certainly there's no evidence that they were uh, dependent on opioids in the first place. But what we know is that a lot of patients on opioids don't like the opioids. They are worried about, uh, yes. about uh, the risk of dependence. They're, they don't like the side effects, which range from grogginess to constipation. And so they may be looking for ways to cut down on their opioids. Um, and, and so what we're finding is that at the start of this study, about 32% of participants were on opioids, and that at, by six months that had reduced to... Uh, 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 that had reduced all the way down to, thir- to 11%. That's a 78% reduction in the number of participants who had opioids. And, and we also saw a significant reduction in the daily dose of opioids, which reduced from 152 milligrams per day at baseline down to, uh, uh, down to 32 milligrams per day at six months. So not only the number of patients reducing opioids, but also the daily dosage of opioids is being reduced, thereby reducing the potential harms of opioids overall. Yeah, well, 78% is a pretty big number. That's three out of every four patients you're talking about here. That's that's pretty amazing stuff. So what are they, uh, are, if they go to medicinal cannabis, is it the THC variety or the CBD variety? Well, that seemed to be age-dependent when we looked at our study. So older patients, those about 50 years old, tend to prefer oral use of high CBD products, perhaps because they're non-impairing. Right. Um, and of course, as you get older, you're worrying about, uh, uh, you know, driving, but also of, of just having a fall in your daily routine. Mm-hmm. Whereas younger patients tend to prefer the inhalation of high THC products. And so, but in both cases, we saw a significant reduction in the use of opioids, as well as the other classes of medications that we looked at. But where I think the biggest public health impact uh, is going to be is in that reduction of opioids as more and more physicians and, and patients are looking for alternatives right now. Well, that's it. And, and as uh, regardless of the, uh, and I, the reason I asked about the, the difference between CBDs and THCs is I think in some cases, in some individuals, you know, I recognize that I'm addicted to painkillers, but I still live with pain and I need to yeah. manage the pain. I don't necessarily want to get high. I just want to manage my pain. That's, that's absolutely true. And what we see with a lot of patients, um, even uh, younger patients, is that they'll take a higher CBD product during the daytime because they don't want to be impaired in a workplace setting. Exactly. They don't want this to impact their quality of life. But then they take a higher THC product before going to bed so that they can sleep off any of the potential impairment but still get some of the benefits of THC. And uh, chronic pain is by far the number one reason why patients cite using medical cannabis. Mm-hmm. So I think this really provides a, a, a much safer, uh, from a harm reduction perspective, alternative to treating con- chronic pain than opioids, which, as you know, as noted right now, are, are, are a huge problem in Canada and throughout North America uh, in terms of dependence. 
morbidity and mortality. We're speaking with Philip Lucas uh, at the University of Victoria's Center for Substance and Addiction Research. Uh, Philip, the, the, we're talking about 78% uh, of, of the population who have responded positively to switching from prescription opioids to cannabis derivatives. Uh, I wonder, though, would the big breakthrough come when this sort of convincing evidence is submitted to sports bodies and they acknowledge the efficacy of medicinal cannabis in either form and allow it to be consumed by athletes at the professional level? Well, it's quite amazing because although there's no formal policy endorsing uh, the use of cannabinoids now in professional sports, there's a large number of professional uh, bodies that have stopped testing and penalizing uh, uh, their, uh, their professional athletes for using cannabinoids. Uh, In other words, they're no longer, uh, you know, doing urine tests for THC or CBD. So they're acknowledging that while these substances may not be performance enhancing, they're also not forbidding uh, this uh, population from using these. You know, it's not just in the treatment of chronic pain either. Um, We know that there are sports out there that have a high uh, potential for a traumatic brain injury. And there's some preclinical evidence suggesting that cannabinoids can be very helpful in reducing the potential harms of a serious head injury as well. So all of that combined, I think, has convinced, uh, and the the growing mountain of evidence has convinced sporting bodies uh, uh, throughout the world to uh, uh, either stop or suspend their testing of THC or CBD. Yeah, of course, uh, in in the States, of course, it's still a federally illegal substance uh, under the Narcotics uh, Code. uh, And and despite the fact that medicinal cannabis is legal in many jurisdictions, including Washington State, right across the border here, uh, it's not not legal, as is the case in Canada, uh, universally or or across the, the board. And that uh, would constrict some sporting organizations, I'm thinking about the NFL, for example, from giving it the green light. Yeah, I think uh, obviously there's no way for them to prescribe at the federal level yet in the U.S., but I think that there's good signs that under the Biden administration that may change. We know that Vice President uh, Kamala Harris talked a lot about legalizing uh, cannabis use on the campaign trail. And as you noted, uh, the majority of Americans right now can actually access medical cannabis at the state level. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and over 25% of Americans are living in, uh, in jurisdictions right now where even recreational non-medical adult use is legal. So it's, it's all but happened. And I'm, I'm, I'm certainly optimistic that patients will be able to have legal access at the federal level over the next few years uh, under this new administration. Joined on the line from Victoria by Philip Lucas, who is a researcher at the Center for Addiction Research. And we're talking about a study that's uh, just been released saying essentially nearly half of medical cannabis users cease using opioids for pain after 12 months. This is a very encouraging study. Uh, And I I note that just in in passing, and I'm curious about your your comments on this, Philip, uh, men and women uh, identified pain and responded to it differently. Tell us how. Well, we, we did find that um, this, this was exciting as a study of someone who's been studying in medical cannabis for over 15 years because we found um, more women than men were part of the study. And when I started um, doing cannabis research many years ago, only about 25% of the patients who were involved in studies and that were involved in the federal medical cannabis program were women. And now we're getting to a point where we've almost got gender parity. And in this study, um, the uh, gender ratio was about 56% 
women. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing more and more women consider the use of medical cannabis um, is that there are a number of conditions like lupus, depression, anxiety, migraines, fibromyalgia, that have a higher prevalence in women than men, but that don't respond well to traditional pharmaceuticals, but that do seem to respond well to medical cannabis. And so it was just really exciting to be able to see that, um, that we're starting to see more women considering this as a treatment option, but also responding really well uh, as, uh, as the outcomes of this study show as well. When I was asking about sporting organizations and big leagues uh, endorsing it or permitting a use, especially for uh, chronic pain management, uh, I suppose it, 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 I, what I was alluding to in my own circuitous fashion, Philip, was the stigma. If you, uh, because, you know, even when you, when you see the TV ads for, you know, uh, safe driving campaigns, and if you drink or if you use drugs, and that you're talking about smoking a joint, but use drugs is the language they use in the TV ad, and that, frankly, reeks of stigma. Yeah, we've still got a lot of stigma around the medical use of cannabis. You know, despite the fact that we've had a medical cannabis program that, that's legal and in place in Canada for 20 years, only about one in five physicians in, in Canada have prescribed medical cannabis. Interesting. 8,000 doctors that have are 40,000 physicians. So we're still seeing that this is not part of the traditional pharmacopoeia that physicians are considering, um, although it is growing month to month and year to year. But that does mean that for some patients, access can still be restricted, um, despite the fact that there are clinics now that are serving populations that's uh, uh, across Canada uh, digitally and that specialize in the prescription of medical cannabis and the consideration of some of these issues. You and I have talked about this in the past, and there's another story uh, in Post Media in just in the last couple of days uh, talking about, uh, and this refers specifically to a former serving uh, soldier in the Canadian military uh, who uh, used uh, medical marijuana to deal with uh, issues from uh, his combat experiences and so on, uh, and it's working, but in terms of the PTSD aspect of his experience while serving, uh, the cannabis wasn't cutting it, and he has applied to health Canada for uh, mushroom therapy, psilocybin, mm-hmm. uh, as a, 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 a psychoactive drug like psilocybin. And you and I have touched us on this in the past. We've only got a couple of minutes here. What do you see as the future for that and as part of the panoply of options coming from the alternative sector to, to opioids? Well, Chile is very interested in the use of medical cannabis for PTSD. And in fact, we uh, concluded a clinical trial with UBC and we're specific to different types of cannabinoids uh, being vaporized in the use of, T, of, uh, CB, of uh, treatment of PTSD. And we're just analyzing that data right now. So we hope that in uh, 2021 that we've got a, a paper we can publish uh, highlighting those results. But, you, but what we see with uh, cannabis and PTSD is it's very good at symptom relief, which right. can really help quality of life and can actually allow patients who might not be in a position to seek treatment or additional treatments otherwise to seek those additional treatments. And that's exactly Where, what this soldier said, Philip. It's exactly, almost word for word. Yeah, and so it's a very a kind of a, a traditional experience that we're seeing and working with hundreds, if not thousands, of folks with PTSD. But there is some early data suggesting, certainly uh, in, in academic research, that uh, psychedelics, when used in a therapeutic setting, can be useful in not just treating symptoms of PTSD, 
but getting people to the point where they no longer suffer from PTSD at all. Right, right. And this can happen over just two or three treatments over a number of months. And so if it can be a successful option for, uh, for patients, I think that that's fantastic. And, and if we can move away in general, as we have with medical cannabis, from treating these substances, you know, and, and having policies around these substances based on fear, prejudice, and misinformation, which has led to you the 70 years of war on drugs that we've had, and then instead replacing those by policies uh, informed by science, uh, reason, and compassion, um, and, and the war on drugs that's been so damaging uh, throughout the world, I think that that would be moving us in the right direction. So I strongly support research into the use of cannabis in the treatment of some of these conditions, and mm-hmm. as, as well as research in, in uh, exploring the potential for psychedelics to help people in dire need under circumstances like PTSD and certainly uh, end-of-life anxiety associated with cancer treatment, et cetera, which is where a lot of the research is taking place right now. Well, it's interesting that finally Health Canada seems to be coming around to at least uh, acknowledge the potential that uh, some of these substances represent and allowing experiments and uh, limited use to go forward. It's all it's all very positive stuff. Philip Lucas, great to have you back on the show again. It's always fun to talk to you. You do such good homework. Uh, we, we wish you well <laughs> and look forward to another opportunity to continue continue our chat. Thanks, Sterling. It's always a pleasure. I hope you guys have a great day and uh, looking forward to a really exciting 2021 along with everyone else. As are we. Thanks, Philip. There's Philip Lucas, VP Patient Research and Access with Tilray and also a researcher at the University of Victoria's Center for Addictions Research. Bruce Garriock is joining us from Ottawa and the Ottawa Sun. Bruce is the Ottawa Sun reporter for the Ottawa Senators and is a regular sports columnist with the Sun Newspaper Network right across Canada. Canada. Bruce, good morning. Welcome back. It's great to talk to you again. Hi, Sterling. Good to talk to you again. Well, the Ottawa Senators. We'll take your team first and then we'll go after the Vancouver Canucks, the Ottawa Senators. I must say, going into this year with the Canadian division, uh, and I'm sure you felt this in Ottawa, that of, of all of the teams, the seven Canadian teams, Ottawa is the one that had the least expectation, literally expected to finish last. How did that play in Ottawa? Well, I think with the changes they made, um, they certainly felt, Sterling, that they were going to be a better team coming out of the gate. Now, they have shown, uh, I guess the best way to put it would be flashes of brilliance, but one of the things they have not been able to do is put 60 minutes together. And really, uh, they just came off three straight losses to the Winnipeg Jets mm-hmm. uh, as they arrive in Vancouver to play three and four nights here. And um, they've got the day off in Vancouver today. But the reality is they've kind of got to get their game together. And with as many new faces as they have, this group has to find some chemistry. And, uh, you know, you were talking about the Canadian division, and they've got to find it quick. And, you know, they went and got Matt Murray, a two-time Stanley Cup champion, uh, to, to play in goal. He has struggled from the start. They went and got Evgeny Davidinoff from the Florida Panthers, a guy who scored 82 goals. Over his last three seasons, he scored his first in an Ottawa uniform last night. Mm-hmm. They can't have him going five games without a goal. Um, you know, they have to be better in their own end. Their all-star defenseman, Thomas Shabbat, has struggled mightily, minus five in the last two games. So, um, the, the, the early, the, the, the hope was, people knew what the expectations were, but I think the people in Ottawa hoped that they would rise above those expectations, sure. and obviously... 
so far they haven't. Well, again, you could say pretty much the same thing for Vancouver, except the expectation thing. That's very, very different here. This is a much more demanding market, and uh, the the expectation level is uh, much higher, in especially after the Canucks uh, adventure in the playoffs last year. Uh, of course, the Ottawa Senators did not make that. They didn't get to the Edmonton bubble last year. Uh, so with the, with the expectation being that much higher, I think uh, the the frustration level here in Vancouver is much higher than in Ottawa. And, and I, I think that's simply because of the same reason, though, Bruce. They're still a team in search of chemistry. Yeah, and I, I think the, the, the one thing about Ottawa uh, that maybe doesn't compare to Vancouver's Ottawa's a number of young players, and I think that the belief in Ottawa is that uh, those young players should be playing come hell or high water. Um, I, I believe that, you know, the Senators brought in a, a lot of uh, veteran help to try and help them be successful during a 56-game uh, uh, season. You know, when I look at the Canucks, when, when they went so deep, uh, when they went deep in the, uh, in the return to play, last year that certainly set up their expectations but i think you look at that roster they still made a lot of changes and i don't think you know having looked at their power play numbers a couple of days ago i don't think their power play has been very good um you know i think that they're i think they've they've got some soul searching to do but the expectations in both cities are different but i can tell you in ottawa the expectation is that uh, they don't mind losing if the young players are developing um, but I think that that's what the fan base is a little up in arms about right now in Ottawa. Interesting. Now, between Vancouver and Ottawa, you were there, or at least your team was there while this took place. We had this blockbuster deal go down yesterday, and I'm just interested in your thoughts on the big trade between uh, Patrick Laine and uh, the Winnipeg Jets and, and uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois from the Columbus Blue Jackets. And it wasn't a one-for-one deal. There, there was another player involved, but those are the two big names. What did you make of that? Well, I think what you saw there, Sterling, was, was two teams trading problem for problem, right? Patrick Laine uh, had asked for a trade. He was going to be a problem for the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, this summer, when he when he could file for salary arbitration, mm-hmm. Pierre Luc Dubois signed a two year deal, uh, a bridge deal in the in, just before camp started. But he had also asked for a trade, and the reasons for his ask aren't very clear. I, I look at the Liney situation. You know, this is an all star, an all star player who I think if he has the kind of year that everybody expects, Sterling, I think he's going to get north of nine million in arbitration and i don't think uh the 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 jets would have elected a two-year deal but i i think he if he went north of nine million i don't think the jets were going to pony up for that sure and i and i don't think anybody believes that the jets were going to pony up for that so they get a reasonably priced center uh for five million a year which is a lot of money to say is reasonably priced mm-hmm. um but they get him for two years and they move Line out of there. And I think, you know, uh, just based on what their captain, Blake Wheeler, said yesterday, it sure sounded like uh, everything wasn't uh, great in that Winnipeg dressing room where Line was concerned either. Well, you know, and there was Jack Roslovic who also got yep. to, to part of that deal. And Roslovic, like Line, had asked to get out. 
And, you know, you're right. Uh, when you have a one player, let alone two, sort of sitting in a corner fermenting or stewing, yeah. and, the, and the rest of the team is trying to get going and, and get something, uh, get some chemistry going on, that's just, that just sucks all the positive air right out of the room, doesn't it? Well, and the other thing is, you know, Ross Lovick had, had uh, he was a restricted free agent who hadn't reported for camp. Yes. And, um, you know, uh, I thought it was interesting yesterday when Blake Wheeler was asked directly if he had any regrets about the way he dealt with Patrick Laine, and he, he basically said, yeah, he did. That uh, it sounded like um, he had poured out some frustration on Laine at times, and, and I guess that didn't go over well. And, um, you know, the, the, look, the Jets have gotten off to a good start. Um, but it, it sounds like not all the problems are fixed there either. Well, we've got the North, uh, the Canadian division, the Scotia North division, the only division in this year's version of the NHL with seven teams. All the other three have eight. And, of course, the addition of Seattle next year will change that mass, Bruce. But here we are with the, the all-Canadian North division. And we're talking about two of the of the seven teams. Let's take a step back and look at the division. Uh, I'm sensing from Canadians that I talk to in several several provinces already about this that a they're expecting a pretty tough slog uh, and and uh, there's no consensus yet uh, despite the Toronto media as to who could emerge as at the top no there isn't and i think it's interesting because you know everybody talked about the improvement of the canadian teams during the off season and uh you know you you look at the edmonton oilers uh, they have, you know, been up and down coming out of the gate. I think the Montreal Canadiens, uh, as we saw last night in Vancouver, have absolutely shown that they have improved. Oh, they're here, you bet. Yeah, and and I think they're going to give the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs a run for their money. Should Toronto be the best team in Canada? Yeah, they should, quite frankly, um, uh, because I think they've got the pieces in place. But anything on paper, as we've seen with the way the Canucks have started this season, Sterling is is just a prediction. And the only team that we haven't actually mentioned once so far, interestingly, especially from a Canucks fan perspective, is the dreaded Calgary Flames. Yeah. Not Va- not Vancouver's favorite hockey team, but again, uh, th- th- we're not hearing much from them yet. No, and I, I, think, I, I think the Flames are going to make some noise. I think they learned some things in, in their return to play about themselves. I, I, I think one of the things that Brad Tree Living kind of did was I think there was a lot of belief after they, they faded out and that returned to play that they should move either Sean Monaghan or, or uh, Johnny Goudreau. Uh, they didn't do either of those things. They decided to remain patient. And uh, I, I think in the end that will pay off. And you've got to think, Sterling, that they're going to be in the mix one way or another at, at when this all comes to, to an end in, in early May. But what's interesting about it is, you know, there's going to be there's going to be you know, three good teams on the outside looking in. That's right. And that's just the structure of the playoffs. Bruce Garriock is on the line from Ottawa. Bruce is the Ottawa Senators' official newspaper guy and writes sports columns for the Sun Newspaper Group. Yesterday's uh, says, here's the headline, the Ottawa Senators will be following the protocols after the Washington Capitals fiasco. And, of course, the Ottawa Senators are on the road, Bruce. Uh, They're here in Vancouver with the day off today. And uh, let's talk about those protocols and life for your guys and ours and every other team 
in Canada, at least, on the road this year. Let's talk about the protocols and what Alex Ovechkin and friends did to, well, get themselves in deep hot water. Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, uh, I think given the fact that it's it's so tight, um, it's interesting when you, you know, we've, got, we've obviously been going to the rink here to games and, and practices, and we're only allowed in certain areas. Sure. And, and if, if you get into an area, you can't move from that area, and that's basically the same way it is for the players. When they get to the hotel, uh, they're basically, they can go for a walk outside the hotel, but they're not supposed to go in in, in anywhere and get a coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not supposed to go to each other's rooms. Um, usually, I, th- I think the NHL in the, in the CBA, if you play over 400 games, you get your own room. Well, this year, every player has their own room. It, it sounds like the Washington Capitals, uh, four of the players had uh, had a gathering in somebody's room. Exactly. Ovechkin, yep. And uh, one of them tested positive, or a couple of them tested positive for COVID-19, and the, and the team was fined. And I think that was just for a team that's heading on a seven-day or seven-game, 14-day road trip like the Senators were, I think it was just a loud message that you better follow the protocols. Not that they weren't going to before, but it just, I think that just sent a, a shot across the league to let everybody know that the NHL is serious about their health and safety rules. And, you know, think about it, Sterling. We had a discussion last month about, you know, the province of British Columbia signing off on those health and safety protocols. Right, we sure did. You know, about the, 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 the five provinces in Canada and the fact that, you know, you know, the province of BC didn't want to be the the lone outlier, so they made some suggestions uh, to to the to the NHL that they wanted them to, to institute, and and those were accepted by the league. So if you're go- if you're going to accept the rules, then you have to live by the rules, and and the NHLPA accepted those rules. So now the players have to live by them. Well, and of course, and at uh, at their peril if they don't, as we've seen, uh, what is a hundred thousand dollar team yeah. fine levied against the Washington Capitals, and Ovechkin and friends got a four game suspension. And if indeed one of one or more of them attested positive, uh, they may be out for more than four games too, right? Well, exactly. And and think about in a fifty six game season, how much four games means. It, it means a lot. And and. I mean, I hate the, I I hate the expression four pointer. But when you're only playing in your own division against teams who are in your division, every game is a four pointer because every game means so much. And I go and I suppose that we're going to jump in and take some calls here in a second. And Terry, stand by. You're first. I think that's the that's the buzz that I'm picking up. I've friends and family in Ontario and Quebec, and and we're talking all the time. And and the buzz is that it's really. Especially in the Canadian division, where uh, and I'm sure it's the same in the others. This is the only one we're paying attention to. Yeah. Every game's a playoff game this year, Bruce. Well, absolutely, and this is why you know um, the Senators letting one slip away uh, uh, on Tuesday to the Winnipeg Jets is so devastating for them. You know, they, the 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 Vancouver Canucks their start. Uh, if if they don't climb out of that hole soon, then it could very quickly become hopeless for them, right? You mm-hmm. know, 10 games, in, 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 I'm horrible at math, but the 10-game mark is going to be a lot. You know, we always talk about, um, 
we always talk about American Thanksgiving and the 20 uh, being around the 20 game mark of the schedule. That's right. Well, you know, this year someone in Ottawa posted the other day, I thought it was quite funny, he said, you know, I've always said if, uh, I think it was Sean Simpson from the local radio station here posted, you know, I've always said if you're not in the playoffs of Valentine's Day, you're going to have a tough time. But think about it, Valentine's Day is probably going to be your your 15 or 20 game mark of the way the schedule is going. Sure, sure. And and, and thus the, the intensity and thus the, uh, I think, the excitement of the fans simply because of that. And and the old, the, the classic pent-up demand isn't isn't hurting us at all either. Let's go to the phone lines. And Terry's been waiting here for a few minutes. Terry, thanks for that. And good morning. Yeah, good morning. How are you guys doing? Okay. Uh, um, i got a great, quickly, hockey memory. The Habs came out of the dressing room here at 75 at the Coliseum. I'm a Habs fan. I had a program. I got Ken Dryden's autograph, Scotty Bowman, Guy Lafleur, Steve Shuck, Cornway, and six other players signed it, so I got the program. Um, so that's going to go with me when I pass away. No, he's getting that thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, anyways, that's, that's uh, great team. team right there. That's Terry. right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so here's two quick questions. Um, Legitimately, do you think the Habs could win the Cup? I think they got a good team. I don't know if they can go all the way. It's up to Carey Price, I think. And He's number two? Sometimes. But also, what's the playoff format like? Are they going to go, all the Canadian teams play until the final, and then we have an American team playing a Canadian team in the Stanley Cup final, which I think would be great, especially if the Bruins get in and the Habs beat them in seven games in overtime. Price for two hours. No, that's it's, it's great. It's fair questions there from a from a diehard Habs fan, Bruce. Of course, you're surrounded by them in Ottawa. You deal with these people every day. Uh, let's talk a little bit about a, a couple of questions there from Terry. Which one to take first? Well, I mean, let's uh, let's start with the playoff format. Um, the playoff format ensures that uh, they'll play interdivision in the first two rounds, so it does ensure that a Canadian team will be in the top four. Uh, and from there, they're going to have to figure it out depending on the border restrictions, right? Uh, I, I would think that you, you're probably going to, one way or another, see playoffs in a bubble, but there certainly will be a Canadian team in the top four. Um, the, the other question was, can they win the Stanley Cup? Who, who knows? Um, the, the interesting part of all of this to me is that, look, the Montreal Canadiens have absolutely improved, uh, but but I, I agree with Terry. That's on Carey Price. You know, the, I I think they'll go as far as Carey Price can carry them. Well, they got and Jake also, Allen backing up Price. That's not going to hurt this year either. You yeah, know. and 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 he and he was good in his appearance. So I look at that and I say, you know, um, if he, you know, if he, how much is he going to play? Um, how is it going to look during the playoffs? Uh, will they will will they move into bubbles? How will how will the teams handle being in bubbles if they if they spend the last month in bubbles in the in a bubble because yeah. we know that the players didn't exactly enjoy that in the summer. So there's so many factors involved. But one of the good things about this Canadian division is. We know that there's going to be a Canadian team in the top four. Absolutely. And uh, interesting, they've, they've probably structured the playoffs this year with that very cross-border. Uh, somebody's going to have to uh, give up uh, residency and all of that kind of stuff in the playoffs. It's very interesting stuff. And it's well, you all... have to think, Sterling, just based on the 14-day quarantine. Exactly. That that a, a Canadian team is headed somewhere in the States. No question it just, about that. It, it, it just seems to, to, to make sense. Because 
do you and I think by May that the border is going to be open? I don't. Uh, no, right? <laughs> that's for sure. Bruce, got to leave it there. I very much appreciate your time. Last time we only had a few minutes together. We had a half hour to kick things around, and it was delightful. Uh, very and, uh, much. It's nice that you've got that Ottawa weather there. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Garriock, take care. We won't be cheering for your senators, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll show them a good time over the next few days. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Bruce. Bruce Garriock, the Ottawa Senators reporter from the Ottawa Sun this morning. A couple of Saturdays ago on our program, we had the privilege of speaking with a couple of pastors, Christoph Reiners from Our Savior Lutheran in Richmond and Kristen Steele from Shepherd of the Valley in Langley. They were two of a group of pastors uh, representing many congregations across British Columbia who had got together and written a letter of support to Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, in a Basically, the letter, and I'm paraphrasing terribly, but basically the letter said, we've never been through this before. We're all kind of winging it. We appreciate your guidance. We're willing to follow your rules. And then expressed in very Christian, kind ways, a certain degree of discomfort with other congregations who felt differently. Mario Canseco is back with us this morning. Mario is the big guy, the boss at Research Company, the polling company here in Vancouver, and he's been doing some homework with church leaders and members of congregations to find out how B.C. folks feel about going to church or staying home. Mario, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you this Sunday. Well, it's good to have you with us. I don't know whether you heard the the show we did a couple of weeks ago with those two pastors. They were absolutely outstanding guests, and they were very concerned that, uh, that, that people in the Christian community were being divided on what they felt was an, an, an unnecessary thing. So as you canvass British Columbians uh, over the past few weeks on this very subject, what have you found? Well, what we find is uh, a public that is definitely concerned with the possibility of COVID-19 lasting longer than it should if we allow people to go back to churches or temples and uh, effectively not have the ban on in-person worship. Uh, We have 81% of British Columbians who agree with this prohibition, only 13% who disagree. And what is interesting to me looking into the numbers, this is not a situation where you have people who are not religious saying that this is something that shouldn't happen. Right. Uh, if you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, if you have no religion, the level of support is uh, similar to what we see with those who describe themselves as Christian. 81% of them say, uh, I would like to go back to church, but this is not the right time for this, and I'll find other ways to worship because we have to follow the guidelines that are in place in the entire province. Indeed, and you, you are wise to mention temple and synagogue and various other places of worship, because this is by no means a, a denominational exercise. This is a citizen's uh, uh, exercising or not their right constitutional, no less, to freedom of worship that is being temporarily interrupted in the interest of the public good by the authorities, and that affects all denominations and all places of worship. Well, and in the same fashion that it affects a lot of other activities uh, that we cannot do in the province. You know, it's a fairly complicated matter because of the fervor that can happen when you're talking about something that is uh, dealing directly with religion and your opportunity to worship the way you want to. Uh, But what we see here from most British Columbians is that uh, because of the situation that we have, because of the number of cases that we've seen, particularly after the summer and as we were heading to the end of 2020, um, they don't feel that this is the right course of action. It's definitely not a situation that they want to have. 
because if you allow something to happen within specific guidelines related to cleanliness or distance, it's very difficult to enforce when you're talking about a specific temple or church. So definitely a situation where British Columbians are saying uh, there will be a time for this, just like there will be a time to travel and to do other things. The time is not now. Indeed. And I suppose the frustrating part for a lot of church-going people, and again, the denomination is really irrelevant, is it's not just about going to the service, the the, the, the moment of worship when the congregation assembles uh, for the purpose of, of, of worshiping and, and uh, expressing things together. It's the other stuff that goes on in church too, Mario, whether it's the girl guides meeting in the basement or the women's committee that helps out at the, the shelter, uh, the, the, the charitable donations. Sometimes there are food uh, programs organized. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ancillary activity uh, surrounding a lot of churches. You're absolutely right. It's not a situation where you can point to only mass, if you're looking at it from the standpoint of uh, Christianity, for instance. There's right. so many other things that happen uh, within church. And One thing that has been interesting to watch over the past few months is the way in which specific congregations have dealt with this. You know, we've seen uh, cable companies, satellite television, devoting more channels to streaming religious gatherings. This is something that we didn't have six months ago. Uh, There were also drive-by communions in some places, drive-by confessions. Uh, There are ways to try to allow people to continue to essentially practice their faith. It just can't happen in the same way it did before, just like many other things in our lives. You have a lot of people working from home. You have uh, leagues and sports being played in front of empty stadiums. You know, the religion is not immune to COVID-19. And I think this is something that most British Colombians get. And this is why they support uh, the way that the government has been handling it. Well, it's funny that you would you would indicate that uh, all of the, the extra capacity developed by many platforms to handle the increased demand for religious participation, Zoom mass, for example, those sorts of things. Our two pastor guests a couple of weeks ago were pretty funny uh, on this matter, Mario, because, of course, they're not exactly video uh, experts either. And as this pandemic has progressed, uh, leaders in various churches and denominations have had to become video producers and otherwise. And so there have been moments of, well, real comedy as, as they tried to get a service on the air and something didn't work. And the pastors were both very, they were cute and funny about it, but they're also saying, you know, this is this is part of rolling with the punch, isn't it? You just, you, you work it out on the fly and most people get that and they're supportive of it, even if it is a little amateurish from time to time or, or comically awful once in a while, uh, people get what's going on. Yeah, I think that that is absolutely true. One of the things uh, that is also uh, important to watch here is that whenever you have a policy that is implemented by a government, you're bound to have those who didn't vote for that particular party come out against it. Uh, We've seen it consistently here in British Columbia with certain decisions from the NDP government that are not particularly popular uh, with people who voted for the BC Liberals or the BC Greens. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not the case here. You know, we see whether you voted for the Greens uh, or the BC Liberals or the BC NDP, uh, you believe that this is the right course of action. And what is interesting here is uh, it's not a situation where you're um, essentially pinpointing a specific faith or a specific place where this is happening. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of coverage and a lot of discussions about those who are breaking the rules. Sure. There's been fines that have been levied. Uh, but it's not a situation where a lot of people are saying this isn't uh, fair. You know, it, it's uh, essentially something that we would all face if we were to break the rules 
uh, that are in place for us. If you break your quarantine, if you decide to travel around the world and not come back, look at how politicians who travel during the holiday season are being treated. You get an idea of the animosity that can happen. Exactly. Uh, I wanted to talk about fines briefly. I need to take a break and I want to open up the phone lines. But just before we do, just to finish this thought through, as you surveyed British Columbians on on their sentiments towards gathering uh, for the purpose of religious worship, uh, there have been negative consequences for some congregations who have decided to ignore the public order and gather. And they've been fined, well, up to 2300 bucks more than once in a couple of cases. What was the sentiment among churchgoers uh, with respect to the fines applied to some uh, congregations? Well, what we see here is a situation where most residents believe uh, that the fines are either about right, 40% say that, and 39% believe that it's, un- that it's too low. So too low. the appetite is definitely there for the type of punishment that we've seen. When we ask people who are Christian, 41% believe it's about right, 34% believe it's too low, and 18% believe it's too high. So you still have more uh, residents uh, who are religious and who are Christian who are saying, this is fine. You know, 18% are saying this is too high for a specific congregation. So even with a situation like this, you don't have that polarization where a specific group of residents are saying they're being targeted because of their religion. It just doesn't uh, show up in the data. I mentioned uh, just before the break, I mentioned that we do, each and every one of us as Canadian citizens, have a constitutional right to freedom of worship. And those rights have been rescinded on a temporary basis by the government. What do people tell you about that, that element of this? Or did it even come up? Well, I think what we see here from the data, and this is something that we also get in the feedback forms, uh, the situation is not necessarily about somebody curtailing your right to do things. Uh-huh. I think it's, not, it's, it's ultimately figuring out a way uh, to deal with this pandemic. You know, nobody's saying that you're not allowed to believe in something. They're just saying that the type of congregation that you can have on a given Sunday is not something that is going to bode well for the future of the province because we have to deal with the pandemic. And Four out of five British Columbians understand that. Mario Canseco is the boss at Research Co., British Columbia's polling company here in Vancouver. There's a movie production going on in my neighborhood. It's a million little things, the television series that was shooting uh, some scenes uh, just a couple of blocks from where I live. Batwoman is also shooting in New Westminster. And the Mighty Ducks were also shooting in New Westminster at Queen's Park Arena a short while ago. Busy, busy, busy. It's uh, it's uh, the movie business going nuts these days. And here to talk about it uh, from Creative BC is the CEO, Prem Gill. Prem, good morning and welcome back. It's great to have you on the show again. Hi, Sterling. Thanks for inviting me back. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us about how busy, busy, busy we all are. This is fabulous news. Yeah, it is really great news. Lots of people are working, uh, supporting a lot of other businesses that are surrounding the film industry. You know, I mean, 2020, like every sector, was, you know, a complicated, tough haul for many. And certainly there was, we saw our biggest lows ever in terms of almost at zero production to ramping back up to now, you know, between 40 and 50 productions this winter. So things are going well. And, you know, many of the productions you noted, there's all kinds of scale of productions from, you know, there's probably web series to movies of the week to big feature films. 
And then you can, friends, if you want to find out what's going on around town, you go to the Creative BC website, which is creativebc.com. And on the right-hand side on the homepage, it says Toolbox. And one of the things you can click on is called In Production. And if you click on that, up comes this long, long list of movies and television shows and series and movies of the week that are currently being shot in and around Metro Vancouver. But, Prem, here's the big question. You, you, you've already said we went, well, you were locked down just like everybody else in BC last March, and you went from zero to where we are now, which I'm told is actually busier than before we were locked down. How did you regain that incredible inner, uh, energy again? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a definitely an industry collective effort. I think during that lockdown period, everybody was obviously being very cautious and trying to figure out what would be a safe return to work mm-hmm. and certainly following the direction of the public health officer and then working closely with WorkSafe DC and ActSafe, which is the industry association on safety measures and the labor organizations working together with industry. Obviously, production doesn't look the same mm-hmm. exactly in the sense of, you know, there's safety protocols and product, uh, um, there's a pandemic production guide, you know, there's a lot of different things to ensure that the safety on set continues well, and I, that everybody is, yeah, following I, these guidelines. I was just walking the dog through the neighborhood yesterday, and mm-hmm. I literally came on this set, and of course the one thing that people notice the, the, when you're not involved in the business and you come into any area where there's a movie or something being shot, the first thing you can't help but notice is, holy cow, look at all the people. It's mm-hmm. an incredibly labor-intensive industry. It provides a lot of work for a lot of people, Prem. Exactly. And, you know, certainly movie magic, if you've ever been on a set, it's, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of people behind the scenes to make something happen, mm-hmm. you know, when we're watching it on whatever screen you're watching. And, you know, the industry has always been very safety conscious. I think that's the other benefit is that it wasn't like putting in new safety protocols and procedures was something new. Obviously, this is taking on a whole new meaning, but that was something that's already embedded into the, this industry, which is why I think, you know, in my view, anyways, the ad- adoption of new protocols was, you know, more or less seamless. Has the, uh, has the industry in Los Angeles, has Hollywood, Prem, bounced back to the same extent that Hollywood North, British Columbia has? Yeah, I mean, I'm not in Los Angeles, obviously, and I think they've had, uh, just following, you know, the news around what's happening in L.A. County in terms of the pandemic, I think the same kinds of precautions. Certainly the industry here works very closely with people in Los Angeles and development of the protocols. Sure. The industry there was very closely involved with our sector here, and I think it's probably a, a mix of, from what I'm reading and hearing about, is that it, there's some production maybe back, but definitely... Um, you know, it's the it's more the what's happening in the public sphere of the pandemic that, you know, extra precautions or more perhaps there's been delays in, in some productions returning uh, just as they're trying to manage the scale of the pandemic. And ultimately, we want everybody to rise up again and be successful. Sure. You know, that's good for everybody at the end of the day. One of the things that we found in this slot uh, on our weekend show, talking to people in the arts community for the past two or three months, Pam, uh, has been how, how few have been able to uh, go to work 
in the way mm-hmm. that they become accustomed performers. No audience, not quite the same. Zoom's fine, but not quite the same, uh, and and all of that sort of thing. The one the one thing that they have noted, several of them, is many of our people in the arts community have found work, temporary or otherwise, in film production. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've certainly heard about you know perhaps some technical type of positions, right. or people who work in big theaters or. Um, you know, of course, we want live theater and all of that to come back safely. But if there are some people that can find, you know, some short-term employment in, in a sector like the motion picture industry, it's great. Um, but obviously, a lot of people are being impacted by not being able to have live shows and production. And, and certainly the music industry, while they're adapting, you know, the inability to tour and have large festivals, you know, could have some short-term lasting impact. Indeed. Prem Gill, thanks for this. It's always a pleasure to have you come by, especially when you're just loaded right to the top with good news, as is the case this morning. Keep up the good work, and thanks for this. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Sterling. Always a pleasure. Uh, CreativeBC.com, by the way, is the website. If you're interested in what's going on and where all of those uh, movies are being shot, just check on In Production, and you'll be quite quite surprised. Oh, it's those people. Yeah, it's at 9.56. That means we're done, and Mike Agarbo and the gang are all set to roll out the app show. So I better say thanks to Julie Wong and Andrew Ferreira. Wish you a very good week, and get the heck out of here. Have a nice day. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.